Hi, I'm Carla Marie Sweets, and you are listening to the Playmakers Podcast, a new podcast by Box of Tricks Theatre Company that is all about platforming creative conversations with theatre makers from all parts of the industry. This episode's guest is the brilliant Justina I know. Justina is a neurodiverse creative producer, performer, and writer. Driven by the detail in creative journeys, Justina engages in stories that lend a hand to filling in missing parts of history. Justina has worked with I Am Pact, The Lowry, Hattrick Productions, YouTuber Tom Simons, The Royal Exchange Theatre, The Bruntwood Prize for Playwriting, and Contact Theatre. Justina trained with the Edinburgh TV Festival, CLAW, Stage One, Artistic Director Leadership Programme, Arden School of Theatre, and The Brit School. And if you're interested in producing, this is the episode to listen to. It's a really honest conversation. And as with all episodes of the Playmakers podcast, it's pretty raw and uncut and unfiltered. So you may hear the odd swear word that hasn't been beeped and some discussions around sensitive topics. Justina and I recorded this episode on a very cold day in December. So if you can hear a gentle whir in the background, that would be the heater that was stopping us from shivering throughout the whole conversation. If you can handle that, I think you'll enjoy this a lot. Here's me talking to Justina. Why theatre? Why not? Um, storytelling, innit? It's the, one of the original forms. Literally put two people anywhere, don't have to have a set, and get them to start talking, and that's theatre, isn't it? It's the original historical keeper, history keeper. Mm. It's the original mirror to society. It's the original teaching tool. And then we've just extrapolated from that, haven't we? Um, even before writing, there was people just telling each other things to remember. Yeah. Passing, passing things down through centuries. Yeah. So then, like, why now, for me, is because a lot of the people that I had admired when I was small in, like, TV land or, or telly land, a lot of them spoke of them getting their knowledge and cutting their teeth in theatre and then I've just liked it and stayed. Was TV or film where you wanted to be eventually, initially? Um, Was that the long term I never really thought of it as as an ending point. Hmm. It's a thing that I would include in my toolbox and I have done for TV and it's a thing that I can include my work in. Mm. Um, as to like where I want to end up, I don't know. Um, and it sounds wishy-washy, but I want to work in TV and I still want to work in theatre and make shows that affect people. And if that then progresses onto them, the shows in theatre, becoming TV shows or creators from that theatre show extrapolating on ideas that ends up into a film or some kind of podcast Mm. or like I like the journeys more than the destinations Mm. yeah that's more my vibe so when you were growing up and there were these people that you admired who you knew had experience in had experience in theatre would you say it's fair to say that you could see yourself in the theatre world? 
And I'm asking this as a woman of black heritage. Oh, no, totally. I'm just thinking of how, how it happened. Uh, short answer is no. Yeah. I just put myself here. I kind of just put myself in places that I like. And then what ended up happening is, like, I would realise I was one of the only people and then people would make me realise I was the only, one of the only people. And then it would dawn on me, oh, right. Am I supposed to be here? Mm. But then by proxy of me being there, I was meant to be there. So I stayed. Mm. Some places I did dip from and some places I didn't. Mm. Um, and what, what guided your decision on both those counts? Realistically, it was my internal want and my internal feelings. I enjoyed being around the community and the collaboration of storytelling. So I stayed around it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very much like a base creature in that. I, I follow my instincts and a lot of my, like the last 10 years of me growing into my adulthood is learning that that's okay. Mm. My struggle was that a lot of people had this really extraneous reasons and and obviously if I were to, like right now is the perfect opportunity because it's a podcast and we want all the extraneous reasons I'm <laughs> trying to give but um, like in the day to day where a person like would be asked a question of their why mm. my why was because I liked it and I felt comfortable here. I felt home in these spaces. And so I'd keep following what home felt like. And not home by way of it always feeling comfortable. Home by way of I felt myself improving. I felt myself growing. I was learning about who I intrinsically was mm. in relation to other people mm. and how other people ticked. And I liked that experience. And it was different every single day. And there was a time frame to it, be it four months uh, or a year or three years, and then things would shift. And I liked, I liked seeing that and following those patterns. And like, it's like seeing a plant grow, mm. but clearer. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's... It does, it does. When you talk about things changing, do you mean changing from project to project or watching the industry change as a whole? I mean project to project, mm -hmm. but inevitably because of been doing this, like to give a bit of background on myself, I've been in industry now since 2015. Mm -hmm. um, that's when I graduated. Where did you go? Uh, Arden School of Theatre ah. in Manchester, the Arden. Represent. Um, then before that, I was at the Brit School in Croydon, London. Uh -huh. um, before that, I went to a place called uh, Kidbrook Secondary School, which no longer about. exists. It's been changed twice since. And that was also like an art school, mm. arts and technology. Um, so I've been doing, I've been involved with arts all the way through. Yeah. That's why it feels like home, because it's a creative environment and yeah. you've been raised in a creative environment through the Brit School and yeah. Yeah, so it's always been what I've encouraged. So then to backtrack to your question about seeing the industry change, 
over that period of time, yeah, I have seen things change for the better. It's slow. <laughs> it's so slow. Yeah. But it painful. is changing. And I think it's a matter of um, conversations catching up to other parts of the world. Because I think what we forget and what I continu continuously say it over and over again is that we are on a small island. Mm -hmm. This small island has historically done a lot of stuff, sure. Yeah. But it's still a small island. And just because conversations are in a certain place here doesn't mean they are not more advanced in other parts of the world, like, mm. say, Australia or Canada or the US, mm. South Africa, Zimbabwe, Ghana. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Our way isn't the only way, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Even Romania, I think it's really interesting what they do there in terms of how they fund theatre and their kind of rep system, which is such a big thing over there, and it's how they do all of their theatre. Like, okay, they have such a strong... Like, how is it different to here? I think there's just more funding and this idea of, like, if you're an actor, like, you, you go into rep and you spend your year working in rep on, you know, three, four shows or whatever, and that's, you know, you're housed, you're fed, mm. like, that is your life for that time. That used time. to be a thing here, though, didn't yeah. it? And I, if I'm like, I'm happy to be corrected, but I think that's how they roll in Germany as well. Mm, from my yeah. understanding. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot we could learn from Europe, I think. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. But <laughs> it would have been good if, like, you know, there had been some sort of like European club that all these countries that are in <laughs> Europe as well as us could like be in and yeah. we could learn from each other and you know cultural exchange and exchange of resources and that'd be good. It would have been a magical thing <laughs> but like it's peak because the understanding of why that's beneficial is mostly understood in the arts. We can't paint everyone with the same brush because there are mm. people in the arts that are also um, Brexiteers for a variety of reasons. Mm. But like the folks that make the most impact are the folks that did not exist in the arts because they were being fed a different narrative, mm. which again is the importance of media and yeah. theatre and TV and film because that's how they received the narratives that they were receiving. Yeah. And it was like one of the first ways in which, not the first ways, but a, a, a big clarifier of individual bubbles that people were existing in mm. and I'm worried that those bubbles are reforming yeah it's really interesting because when the Brexit vote went through how did we get to Brexit <laughs> I just remember feeling very sure that there was no way it would and when I saw that 52%, I was like, wow, I live in an echo chamber. I had no idea that there were this many people. And then the more I spoke to people outside of just my social circle, and I spoke to like family members, you know, being mixed, <laughs> being mixed race <laughs> in the time funny. of Brexit is a very strange thing mm -hmm. when you've got white working class on one side and African American on the other side. And yeah, white working class family members who were like, yeah, vote Brexit being scapegoated in the heaviest way. And it's like, a few years ago, I was so annoyed and angry and upset that like some white working class people 
felt so slighted that they were going to blame I don't know I don't know but that's the manipulation of it all exactly that's where I'm like but equally we've been manipulated oh, totally. as well totally. to believe that those people didn't even exist anymore <laughs> do you know what I yeah. mean so there's manipulation on both sides which I think is really interesting I think that's why I, part of the reason I got into like the performing arts because I don't just work in theatre I work in um TV now, I also work in like social media. Mm. Uh, very blessed to be doing so. Um, because of the ways in which it can be used to teach history. Mm. So we can't, or so we're less likely, not can't, so we're less likely to repeat the same mistakes. Because everything. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because the strategies being used to manipulate mm. are not new. No. It's just new to us or, yeah. or even there's something that I'm exploring within myself is the theoretical, the theoretical knowledge of things and then the practical implications of them. So there are certain events that happen in my life where I'm like, in theory, I understand perfectly what's happening. Mm. And in fact, I read about it ages ago. But like, ex to experience something is entirely different. Yeah. And I think that's the same of like, life lessons that we learn within ourselves as well, kind of bringing it into a more kind of domestic context. Mm -hmm. We can quite easily watch something happening to a friend of ours or a family member of ours. And, you know, we even have parents tell us stories and say, oh, you learn from my mistakes. But until you've experienced it yourself, you, do, you don't truly learn, not exactly. truly. And even when you do experience it yourself, because of all the stories that you've heard and the books that you've read and the psychology and sociology and all of that that you studied, a lot of the time you're able to kind of stand outside of yourself and go, oh, I know why you're behaving like that or reacting to this thing mm -hmm. like that. But then to be able to step back inside yourself and have the wisdom to utilize that knowledge and actually apply it, <laughs> it's a whole different thing, right? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Um, you spoke about stepping in and out of yourself and also, there was a bit, but I can't remember what it was, but I'm going to say what my point was, is um, the work that I'm doing within myself to try and take things on a case-by-case -case basis mm. rather than bringing prior experience, well, definitely about to contradict what I just said. <laughs> so having that prior knowledge in the back of my mind, sure, but waiting a little bit longer than I would have to see if it is applicable to that situation. I think that's a better, mm. I think that's a better, a better phrasing yeah. of what I wanted to say. I think that's really valuable because especially those of us that are in the creative industries where we tend to be, for the most part, I mean, there's definitely subsections that are less so, we tend to be big time empathizers. And when you are full of empathy, it is hard not to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Like, mm. you know, as an actor and a writer, it is literally my job to continually put myself in somebody else's shoes. But sometimes you need to be not quite so quick to do that, to kind of have a bit of distance and go, actually, is my experience, as you said, applicable to this person's mm. situation? Or do I need to just listen for a little bit longer? Yeah. And see. 
and I, I find the, uh, the idea of empathy and putting yourself in a person's shoes really interesting because the practice of empathizing without having to, without having to place yourself in a person's shoes is a bit lost too. Mm-hmm. Like we should be able to resolve a situation or learn about a situation through the information we're being given. Yeah. But and that's compassion, isn't it? There we go. And yeah. I think it's a slightly you know the two things are often conflated. But it's probably a slightly different thing, isn't it, to say, I don't know your situation. I haven't experienced your situation. I can't even identify with your situation. But you're human and I'm human and I feel for you. Yeah. And I that's feel compassion. for you. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of feelings. Yeah. How did the, the first theatre show that you ever saw... How did it make you feel? Was it a crystallizing moment of, damn, this is what I want to do? Was it a moment of, I'm trying to think of my maybe even feeling a bit one. critical of what you saw? This is what I, I know I could do this better somehow. Okay, so I'm a Londoner, so the first, I'm guaranteed I saw theatre before this, but something that pops into my head is, uh, the Big Life or A Big Life mm-hmm. at uh, Theatre Stratford Royal East, mm. which is about um, a group of friends, uh, spouses, siblings, etc., who came over in the Windrush. Mm. But at that time, I didn't even know that's where they came. That's what that's the boat they were on. Because mm. I remember it was a musical. Um, it was like a fable. I think it was based on As You Like It as well. Oh wow. Um, it was such a magical show and it was part of my like formulating who I was as a human being because it was like an all black cast Mm. but to me like I'd seen that's why I'm like I'd seen theatre before this because I'm like it wasn't strange to see an all black cast wow that's interesting and they were they were of substance as well they were all just so dope like amazing singers, amazing movers, uh, live orchestra backstage as well. And I'm just like, it was just a wonderful musical of, and obviously they were like exploring the hardships that they came, that uh, happened to each of the characters. And obviously the like people that, whose experiences they would have been based on that I'm obviously understanding with like my adult head um, at the time. And I kind of just knew that to be true Mm. it wasn't I think this is where like my theoretical and my practical came in because I was in London because I was in the hub I was in Croydon I was in Hackney I was Mm. in Kidbrook those places are predominantly predominantly black so the hardships they were speaking of I'm like yeah that's true that's how that works yeah yeah but I think at the time I hadn't experienced enough white people to, <laughs> to, to fully understand the practicalities. Yeah. And I think I was, how old would I have been? Um, I'm probably definitely misremembering this, but I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say eight years old. Whoa, that young? Likely. Wow. I'm gonna say eight years old. Yeah. Because I was in Hackney then. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> so I'm like, that's my normal. To see many black people all the time. Mm. It's my normal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm and I again, thank God for that because like 
coming to Manchester was like being dunked in a pool of cold water. Yeah. And that's why I'm like harking back to your question of change and changing the industry. Like 10 years ago in Manchester, I wasn't seeing nearly as many black people in theatre in Manchester as I am now. Mm-hmm. However, that is to say that there are a few more and like obviously you've got contact theatre, you've got um, there's Maz, there's Zodwa, there's Yandas and Iron Pact, there's the um, uh, uh, Soul Pay, there's uh, Misha, there's uh, uh, Morayo and uh, uh, Karina. Like there's there's so many names I can just spill off my tongue mm. now. Whereas ten years ago, bearing in mind I was in like university for three years, mm-hmm. like it's much harder to come by, and also people in decision making spaces. Yes, I think that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because, I, yeah, I would totally agree with you. I grew up in Manchester till I was twelve, and I was the only girl of Black heritage in my year in primary school. I got really badly bullied because of it. And then I moved to the States, Georgia, mm-hmm. and like it's a heavily, heavily black population because slavery. And the school that I, the high school that I went to was 45% black, 45% white, 10% other. And the other was like. Isn't that so rude? It's oh, so rude. So rude. Pacific Islanders, Filipinos, um, Vietnamese people, Chinese people, Hispanic, so many things to fit in that yeah, category, just, oh, such a small category. But yeah, like, when we did shows at school, of course, like, the cast was oftentimes mm. completely black, or at least partly black, and mm. that was kind of what became my new normal, and then moving to London and kind of having to adjust to that, mm. and then moving back to Manchester four years ago and having to adjust to that, and, you know, being in London was like, okay, if you know where to go, you can find your, your tribe, you know, mm. you can find your people. Um, but yeah, if you don't know where to go, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard. And I think That's it's the same here, actually. One of the things that I learned from a friend of mine, uh, Zion, is to be able to utilise social media in the space that you're in to find the people that you... that again make you feel like home yes so i think like many moons ago when i was in university one of the ways that i found my way into manchester theater was twitter and just Mm. like having a look through manchester theater putting that in the search bar and seeing what came up and what came up was the young company will exchange young company and then just me on the ones just trotting along (laughs) to the thing and just seeing what happens and joining young company getting to know people there that's Mm -hmm. how i met yandas yeah and we've been like close collaborate, collaborators mm. ever since mm. and what's, what's another, another thing um, so I think when Black Men Walking and Guys and Dolls mm-hmm. were on at the same time at Royal Exchange yeah. and there was the like um, 80s talk uh, bef- before one of the shows, after one of the shows can't remember, I think it was obviously before because we had to pin down um, both of the 80s of uh, uh, Talawa and 
Eclipse. Oh, there we go. Eclipse, Eclipse yeah. Theatre. Mm. Um, so 80s of both were there, and that got put out through the like usual real exchange ways of like Twitter, Instagram, um, like Flickr with the pictures and all that. <laughs> um, and a bunch of black and brown people showed up to the AD talk, and then I met a bunch of people there yeah. who I then went on to, to collaborate with as well. Um, that's amazing because they don't really have <laughs> they don't really have things like that anymore it feels like not since the pandemic it it's feels that like whole less and less. pancetta it shook a lot of things that mm. were doing so well out yeah. of place and people are just trying to recover people are just trying to recover trying to gain their footing again in yeah. a really ag- aggressive financial <laughs> environment like with the producer yeah. hat on like it's very easy for people to revert back to what they think is safe. Like, yeah, what they think is safe, what they think is an easy sell. Mm-hmm. However, nothing is safe and nothing is easy anymore. And I find it really interesting how allyship is important to people and creating opportunities for marginalised groups is important to people until they're put on the back foot until something like the pandemic happens and then it's like oh wow we can't prioritize that anymore and that's is it true allyship if you choose when you will and when you won't Mm. prioritize it i always think it's funny because statistically speaking financially speaking if you want to follow the numbers it's been proven well maybe in america but i think we could find the stats to support it in the UK as well. The more diverse your creative team is, your team in general is, mm-hmm. uh, the more diverse um, uh, your audience are for a product that you're trying to sell, mm-hmm. whatever, the more money you make. And that's obvious, isn't it? Because if there are people within the team, both backstage and on stage, who represent certain communities, then the word of this thing happening will trickle down into said communities, which means that your reach is going to be a lot broader, which means you're going to have more people. Like, it's really not rocket science, is it? No, it feels so obvious. But, like, (laughs) you're dealing with, like, folks that are also approaching this from a very emotional standpoint, and Mm -hmm. it's hard to logic your way out of an emotional choice. Mm. And it is a choice. You know, I think particularly post-pandemic, people like to pretend that it's not a choice, that their backs are against the wall and, oh, we'd love to do this and do that and do this, but we just don't have the capacity slash funding slash resource slash whatever to do it. But what they really don't have is the backbone. Mm. Mm. I always find it interesting when people say there's no money in the arts because there is, it's just past a certain point uh, it gets it, the the trickle down stops. Mm-hmm. So the money is there. It's just um, where it's being attributed, yeah, and who it's being attributed to. Absolutely. And then I don't know. It's it's like the same questions come up, and I think the same questions come up as a distraction at this point because the answers are very simple. As he said, it's not rocket science. Mm. If you pay people properly, you're able to sustain an industry, and it seems to work for. Well, well, actually, maybe I'm saying this at the wrong time because there are various strikes going on. <laughs> <laughs> but before 
all the striking, other industries understood that as well. Yeah. They but I think... And your systems will run correctly. But I think that's kind of what the strikes are about. Oh, know? exactly. The strikes are people saying that they need more now. Not even just that they want more. Like, this is not a frivolous no, thing. No, yeah, it's like, not about a want. It's about a need. need. To, yeah, we need to survive. And actually... We need to survive in the world of theatre, film and TV as well. But I will eat my hat. <laughs> I don't own a hat, but I will buy a hat and, and I will it. eat it. Lovely. If theatre workers, writers, actors, TV writers, actors in this country ever go on strike. Because yeah. I can't see it ever happening. And the reason why I can't see it ever happening is because we are in, a, in, an, we are in an industry that has a culture of making you believe that you are privileged to be allowed to work within it. Yeah. Not that you are the one who is giving the industry the privilege of your talent and your time and your energy. We're the ones who are privileged for being allowed to even be in these buildings. Yeah. And that infuriates me. And it's not a culture that they have elsewhere. It's not what they have in America, you know. It, by the time this podcast comes out, it's very possible that the writers will be on strike in America because that strike is imminent and it's not the first time they've done it. No, I remember. I actually remember when they uh, went on strike and everything just, just got cut short and they started swapping episodes around mm -hmm. and like narratively things stopped making sense and yeah. I was, back then I didn't understand. I knew the writers were going on strike mm. and so the TV show went a bit skew-with. Yeah. But how old was I then? I must have been about... When was it? Was it 2008? I want to say 2008, yeah. So I would have been maybe like, what, 14? I feel like my ages that I'm giving are so off. I'm going to say 14. So I knew there was a correlation, but yeah. I was just like, I didn't understand contractually. Like, why like, don't pay have anything to watch? Like, it was like a year. But I found, I did find it fascinating though, because mm. I was like, I think that was the first time I understood what Striker could do. Yeah. And again, it was my understanding of like, um, of of uh, systems of change, of um, uh, uh, unionization, mm -hmm. of uh, um, cultural impact through TV and film, and how that industry was working. Yeah. Like I, I understand a lot of my life yeah. through how this industry works. Yeah. And that was my first introduction to that at fourteen, and then I went on a whole Google spree and figured out what happened. But I wouldn't have known and understood that mm. if that hadn't have, have happened in the UK, which is why I'm ha I, I often get really frustrated that I have to like backtrack my references <laughs> from the US to the UK because yeah. I feel like information is a lot easier to access in the US mm. than it is in the UK. I mean, gosh, that depends on a lot of things, doesn't it? I think, I think the, the issue with, with the US is that everything is controlled by Clear Channel. Mm -hmm. and clear channel know. yeah so clear channel is like a god how would i describe clear channel so it kind of like runs a lot of like the advertisers and the okay. tv networks yeah. particularly the news networks but also the radio like everything clear channel are everywhere mm -hmm. and i think they own like um broadband as well so you know if and 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 the problem with clear channel 
is who they're owned by, you know, mm. the kind of nefarious people in government <laughs> that have their fingers in this particular pie. Mm. So, um, and, and, and Hassan, Hassan Minhaj does a really oh, great yes. episode of, yeah, he's done a really great, <laughs> he's a spice, isn't he? Um, but, I mean, I mean, of, of Paycheck, the show, but yeah, it's a great show. <laughs> yeah. And he does an episode, um, of Patriot Act, Patriot Act that is um, focusing on how the internet is shit, and the mm. internet is shit because of there's who no it's controlled by. To make it better. Yeah, and if you, okay, so say like Clear Channel is owned by people who have like right wing affiliations in America, mm. and they don't want certain areas to vote in the next election. Well, a really good way of making sure that they limit the kind of subsection of people they don't want to vote is by making sure that maybe they don't have Wi-Fi accessibility in those areas or it keeps dipping in and out because then they have a limited level of access to information and yes but my and then so so that's going on over there and I'm like what are all of the intricate equivalencies over here Mm. like I noticed that um for certain votes they're asking for like photo identification now mm-hmm. as well, yeah. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm sure for some things that was necessary um, and is uh, has historical precedent, but to the best of my understanding, it it's not it's a new thing that's being introduced. If it looks spooky and sounds spooky, it's probably because it's spooky. But I always like to preface <laughs> everything that I say with like I don't I'm not certain like yeah. I could be disproven. And, some, and a lot of the times I kind of want to be as well because mm. like it's not fun to see things yeah. we, we don't, don't want like be- to believe that our <laughs> lovely cuddly Tory government would truly uh, want to repress us surely not no, but not even that just like and this is going to sound super hippy dippy but like just people in general like yeah. for example with like the, the whole like really um, dire funding situation that the arts is currently in Mm -hmm. I'm doing research into angel investment Mm. and why people would say give half of their money away in their wills or why people would sponsor why individuals Mm. would sponsor uh, a certain cause or a certain company Mm. like outside of being like a family member or, or an old time friend yeah yeah like how that happens and, and i'm why? sure the information what? is out there in mind it's just remember um i came into producing mm. not through university mm. by cobbling together an education for myself through different courses like claw and um artistic director leadership program with um itc yeah. and uh and um and uh, stage one program and things mm-hmm. like that, and I thank God there are so, there are more courses in how to produce now because yeah. that would have like saved me time. But and we <laughs> desperately need good producers <laughs> in this business and in theatre, film, and t- you know, and in film and TV yeah. as well. So thank but, God yeah, <laughs> they exist. But like, so now I'm turning my eye to like the fundraising aspect of things, um, and just the reasoning of why. And what have you discovered? What have I discovered? It is a lot of emotional decision making. Mm. It is. Obviously, when you're talking about uh, corporations, that's a different thing. Yeah. But individual giving, that's definitely based on sentiment. It's based on 
what resonates, what ideas resonate with a person, mm. what causes resonate with a person, what are they trying to help, be it um, making theatre more accessible for um, the blind community or uh, deaf communities, um, uh, whether they are trying to uh, encourage uh, TV and film to be made in a more um, uh, climate-friendly way, mm -hmm. be it like reducing the amount of script drafts that get printed, yeah. or like encouraging people to use devices, helping people to buy devices to use for script work, etc. Mm. Things like that. Like yeah. what causes specifically yeah. are they looking to try and make an impact on for their personal legacy after they go? Right. Or while they're still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is what I find. Mm. But then it's like tapping into who those people are because it's mm. like they are like wary of people asking them for things and that is entirely fair enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's still a journey I'm going on. If still there are any out. people out there <laughs> who are listening to this, um, please donate to your friendly neighbourhood theatre company Box of Tricks oh, right. because, yeah, we, we are doing a lot of great things. And we deserve more resources to do those things with. And that can be because you genuinely care about theatre or, you know, doing things properly and really caring for theatre workers and really expanding who theatre is available mm. for. Or it can just be because you really hate your relatives and you want to spite them when you go. Oh my gosh, <laughs> talking about like theatre for spite. I read somewhere that um, in the olden days, in the olden times, mm. Um, there would be like a theatre that whose patrons were the aristocracy of the time and they would use theatre as like diss tracks of people that they didn't <laughs> <Yes>. like. <laughs> I love that. Like, how can we repurpose this activity? Oh like it, I would have said people in tech if like there's this one tech dude that just sort of like his manager or like one of his colleagues is annoyed and just commissioned like a few people that. to just make a whole play about why this guy just sucks. Yes! It's that type of silly theatre that, that I want a return of. That is so great. We could do a whole scratch night of yeah. diss tracks. Oh, Sam accounts. Yeah. yeah. It just sucks. It could, be, it could be like, I mean, gosh, corporations out there, companies who want to do like team building away days. What if it was just a scratch night of all the people at your workplace that suck? I know, right? We, we, we would do that. We've got a whole that. episode of Scars <laughs> dedicated to that. It's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's so good. Um, so, the theatre that you have seen that has truly changed your life. Oh, yeah. Of course, we talked about the play that you saw when you were eight. Yeah, that was kind of life. your first little, i got to get into theatre. But anything that you've seen since that has been like, wow, this might be the best thing I've ever seen. Now my mind's gone blank. <laughs> That's I'm okay. So nervous. <laughs> I could think I like I can think of shows that have impacted me right now, mm -hmm. which definitely too much world at once. Our yeah. show, yeah, I yeah. think that's. I I say that with my chest, because usually I don't talk about shows all the time. Too much world at once because I love how Billy Collins, lovely writer, has wrapped the climate crisis and the anxieties around it for like young for the young people around a family show about a mother and her two kids 
whose relationship needs repairing. Mm. So while they're repairing their relationship, the world is crumbling around them. Mm. And I just really love the dichotomy of that. And it's just the specificity of the specificity of facts and figures that are put into the show in a way that is easy to remember, mm. is digestible information. And again, and I think Billy said this herself, tapping into the emotional side of something important yeah, and using that as a way to get people to sustain caring because mm-hmm. we're very good at caring for some time and then trucking on to something else but yeah. like sustain, when it becomes boring or yes. inconvenient, inconvenient as I discussed earlier yeah. mm. so uh, too much world at once Little Shop of Horrors at Royal Exchange all those years ago, mostly because of the puppetry and how they were able to hide three people in the belly of um, Audrey too. Wow! And like, if you've been at the if if you've been to the Royal Exchange, like, the stage is deceptively small when you're on it. Like it when is. you're looking at it, it looks huge. But when you're on it, uh-huh. it's 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 smaller. And Audrey too is huge. It's a huge <laughs> puppet by the end. And having three people in that, I'm just like, wow, theatre craft. Yeah. There's nowhere to hide. It's in the round. There's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to no hide. trap doors underneath. No. Like, it, there are those awesome. little things, those little moments where you go, like, just really open your mind up to what is possible in theatre. And that is, yeah. yeah. And the reason why I say that's impacted me is because it provides the magic. When, uh, when, you, inf- when you seek information like I do, and you're looking at for the whys of so many things, to find the why and still be able to, still be wowed and and still be able to find it as mystical as I remember it being, it just make again, just makes me happy, the end. Just mm. makes me happy. Nothing, no two ways about it. Yeah. So there's that, there's um, um, rockets and blue lights. Rockets and Blue Lights. Uh, that was at Royal Exchange before the pandemic. And didn't they only get like two shows or no, something? No, we got. Oh, did, did we, one, wow. one preview oh, before it had to like be shut down for like safety reasons. Oh, because but of the pandemic. Got, yeah. Oh. But, but, but it got a radio play. Um, in the middle of the pandemic which I believe is still accessible on BBC Sounds maybe Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. think and then it then it got a remount Um, it got a remount in London at the National Theatre at the National yeah so it got a remount at the National Mm. and it was it's so breathtaking Uh, it's so it might be on National Theatre at home then I don't I don't know you know Mm. I don't think it got it got it got that. Yeah, that which That's is a sad. huge shame because yeah. again, it's information that people should know. Yeah, because um, it was about um, uh, the painter Turner's works, uh, rockets and blue lights, ah. and also the the slave, the slave ship. ship. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and um, the Zong massacre itself, mm-hmm. which I had some uh, idea about at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, And and listeners, if you don't know what that is about, Turner, um, great English painter, uh, painted a painting called The Slave Ship, which um, features a ship in kind of stormy waters. And you can actually see kind of like 
a foot and a hand and things like this in the water. Yeah, trigger of, warning, guys. Yeah, um, slaves that were thrown overboard. For insurance purposes, they were going to say that uh, they lost these people mm -hmm. um, who they were calling cargo at the time mm -hmm. um, for financial gain. Yeah. Because isn't that what it's all about, folks? So it seemed as if, you know, from their perspective, they had nothing to lose. If the ship wrecks, it doesn't matter because we're going to claim back the insurance. And on top of that, we're hopefully going to save the goods. Maybe the ship won't wreck if we take all the cargo off it. It's just the whole thing. Yeah. Horrific. So, horrific. Uh, so that's why I'm like, I, th I have a huge problem with what I call trauma porn. Um, I, I'm not the only one that calls it trauma porn, but like yeah. I, trauma porn, and but in that time, its place in its place in general, mm. and it was it's one of the only shows that I will happily talk about for the purposes of education, because of the other things that are constantly going on about uh, constantly going on about. Um, UK history being a mystery mm. to its own citizens mm. and the reason why I knew about the Zong massacre I didn't even know the name of it I just knew of the activities be is because of uh, something I, I, I'd like come across it in passing in some kind of research spiral that I was in years prior mm. but I didn't necessarily have the association to the name, the mm. association to the painter, the association mm. to it happening in the UK mm -hmm. after the UK had abolished slavery. Mm. Mm. And so that's why I support this play and it's the way it's so tenderly handled for the actors who have to tell the story. Mm. They're really taken care of. That's good, yeah. yeah. And the tenderness with which the, the story is shared and the just the beauty and the music and this I found the music really soothing after mm. like learning the information that the, the, the play shares. Yeah. And yeah, I just I just thought it was a wonderful show. It's it's a tricky balance to strike, isn't it, between tr what is what is trauma porn and what is truth telling mm. and you know, what Turner did back in the day when he painted that play. I can't even imagine how it was received at the time. And I also can't imagine somebody English and in his position, because he was successful in his lifetime, mm. somebody who's like a super famous artist or actor mm. or, you know, whatever in this country now, risking their position by telling a truth like that. And I find that really interesting. And I think we have to keep that alive, that mm. spirit alive. I agree, like, let's have accomplices rather than allies. Allies mm. is, a, is a bit of a wet word now. Yeah. People don't do nothing, they just say they're allies, yeah. that's them doing something. Yeah. But something, and that's like a, a part of what's explored in the play as well, in mm. that, what is allyship? Is it people that just say they are that? Or is it people that do something? Because the play like jumps around in time mm. and it's like it's a bit of an, an inception one where inside the play, as well as the like um, the events of the Zong massacre, there are the people that are turning it into a film. And mm. part of part of what they're exploring in the film is how the film then turns into 
a, a story of um, William Turner and yeah. his strife and he, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and how no, sucky that is and how not... misplaced of energies that is and mis- misplaced of when you have an opportunity to tell a story whose who's section of the story are you telling like essentially they uh, they green booked mm. William Turner mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the play yeah. and them on picking that uh, the, uh, what's it the constant and repetitive activity of making like the ally the hero yes and that's so important isn't it there's something so valuable in that like how can you be an ally without centering yourself in that story you know and yeah that's an unsung hero yeah that's an important question for people who believe themselves to be allies to ask themselves Mm -hmm. um munro bergdorf said in a podcast that I listened to a while ago, I think it was Annie Max Changes podcast, um, Munro was talking about how if you are vocal about racism on Twitter as a white man, you will get applause, you will get praised. Oh my God, he's so brave for speaking out about this. But if you are a black woman on Twitter speaking about anything even touching race, let alone racism, you'll get abuse. Oh, yeah, and brilliant. it's so true. And realistically, that's why I, I challenge myself to not lower my voice when I'm talking about racism because me as a, like a, a black woman with like kinky curls and I wear my hair out, I wear my hair how I want to, I dress how I want to, mm-hmm. I speak relatively how I want to, I don't always get the same support talking about these things as like other yeah. people do. I feel that. Oh, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Millennial Pink. Hey. So. Girl gang. Girl gang. Yeah. So Millennial Pink is, was your show, is your show. I guess shows are a living, breathing show. forever thing, aren't they? So talk to me about that. Um, Millennial Pink was the exploration of how the media for millennials in the UK um, how it formed us, be it mostly through the lens of music and music videos. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent like three weeks, uh, Megan Marie Griffith, the uh, director and writer, and then myself, Yandas Nglovu, uh, Rasheen, Rasheen Brahoni, and then Amy Gavin, and Noor Hadid. Mm-hmm as well as the amazing Hannah Ryan Ellis coming together to um, explore. So be it through um, the dissecting of like lyrics of like the 90s and noughties, rap lyrics, pop lyrics, thinking about like uh, Biggie and Backstreet Boys, like the spectrum was wide. Wide, Or like Christina Aguilera to Janet Jackson. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I don't think that range is quite wide because Janet is the blueprint for Christina and Britney and Lady yeah. Gaga. And yet, and as you were saying to that, Janet. <laughs> as you were saying that, I was kind of thinking about how music can dictate subcultures and how there was always that thing of like you were either or, yeah. and people really judge you based on like which one you were, and you really like 
kind of um, filled up your identity with which of these things you were, you know, who, who you stand the most before stand culture was even a thing. Uh, on, I had such a bone to pick with us using stand culture because I'm like, I remember the music video <laughs> right? of Eminem yeah. and Dido. Yeah. And I'm like, Stan put his girlfriend in the trunk and drove off a bridge. And you're saying you want, you're calling yeah. yourself a Stan of like whoever. And I'm just like, it, yeah. but then I feel Stan like old man shaking stalker. stick at the sky when I say <laughs> that. And I'm just like, you know what? Words changed. There is, there are evolutions of things. And yeah. I, I'm also an advocate for evolution of things I love Jenny so I'm just like oh this I one do, just like pokes me in the side though I do find it really interesting though when we really look at language how like swear words are considered the most ex- like offensive words when actually there are words that are ingrained in our everyday culture that are far more offensive than we realize yeah. that you know old people who hate swear words use every single day and don't even really know the meaning of, you know? I like the contradiction. It's yeah. just, yeah. Mm. But, um, yeah, that's what we were exploring together. Obviously, it was, it's difficult as, like, an adult to go back and try and excavate your feelings of, like, an angsty teen. Mm. But that's what we spent time doing and putting into, uh, putting into scenes, putting into uh, poetry, putting into dance and mm. putting into song um, of like how we understood ourselves as girls into women how we what we took from that time what we left in that time mm-hmm. what was problematic mm-hmm. of that time and also what might have been problematic but because we were really wide-eyed and naive and children or yeah. teens without like that the same knowledge that we have now. Yeah. We were just experiencing and exploring and figuring out what we did and did not want. Yeah, yeah. And that is Millennial Pink. <laughs> and what is the future of Millennial Pink, do you think? Well, the future of Millennial Pink, more exploration, dramaturgy, uh, and then hopefully, fingers crossed, another life, programming. It's all about the programming. It'll be lovely for that to happen. But, uh, but I, I don't know, I'm not sure. But yeah. like just with my producer head on, because I, I, was, I was attached with that as an actor mm. and I st- stood back from the producing mm. because we already had an amazing team in place. Yeah. Um, as well as the art direction mm-hmm. um, of uh, Vague Digital. Um, but I, I don't know, mm. I, don't, I don't know what's gonna happen. It's, it's just happened. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe taking stock of what's just happened yeah. <laughs> yeah. before you plan for the future. <laughs> yeah. So finally, I would like to ask you what would be your biggest bit of advice for people wanting to get into producing in theatre and maybe for people just wanting to get into theatre in general. So I'll start with producing. I think figure out what producing means to you because that is your first indicator. Does that, do you enjoy putting your creative team together? Do you enjoy the numbers? Do you enjoy making sure everyone's on the same page? So contracting. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy planning a route? Do you enjoy, like road trips? It, would you be a tour producer? Like figure out what element of the logistic process 
the communication process you enjoy and then start buckling down asking people questions like delving into things like uh, uh, independent theatre council back to equity uh, stage one even though that's for commercial producing well no yeah that's that's imperative commercial producing mm-hmm. um, finding out what courses there are that you can apply for and tag on to mm-hmm. and finding out what resources are around you right now that you could cobble together and make your first production with or make your next production with because likely if you just sat down and just made like a small small list mm-hmm. you'll have something around you yeah. that you can make a show with people around you who you can make a show with and does that show even need to happen in a traditional theatre space exactly Mm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I would say for people that are looking to get into producing. Um, people that are looking to get into theatre at all, find some kind of company to join. Uh, be it a young company, if you're still within that age bracket. Be it an uh, uh, Amdram company, mm-hmm. because some folks in there might be in industry, some folks in there might just like it, mm-hmm. like with their like, day-to-day job. Um, uh see what else there is like local theater companies so like your equivalent or, or theaters in general so your equivalent of places like 532 that are doing amazing work in manchester um talk to your family as well you never know if someone might have back in the day done something or some some other that you had no idea about mm. um and also, I would always, always say Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. I would bring back Facebook <laughs> for the purposes of work because that thing is still there and there are a whole bunch of people on there that are just chilling, having yeah. a good time now. A whole bunch of people there that have very divisive opinions, but there are yeah, also a bunch yeah, of people we'll, chilling. We'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll you'll find the good people with the search, func- search function. Yeah. Just make ample use of the search function with quotation marks so you get like exactly what you want. Um, but yeah, those, like, I, would, I wouldn't have been in the position I'm in now if it weren't for Twitter and the search box. Mm. Yeah. So find your people, in other words. <laughs> Go where you are celebrated. Yes. And if you don't feel like you're being celebrated, if you have the energy to, ask why. If the answer is helpful, then dope. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the energy, go where you're celebrated. Yeah. I always think about that guy that goes, he rides through Manchester on his bike with the boombox. Ah, he's dope. And I'm like, he doesn't care about whether he's celebrated because he's bringing his own party. Yeah, and, we, and we love him. <laughs> we love well, him. Well, when you've got a migraine, maybe not. Still, <laughs> you love his vibe, even when you've got a migraine. You just yeah. have to block your ears a little bit. <laughs> Such an amazing chat and so refreshing always to talk to somebody who is so honest about what's going on in the industry these days. Justina and I work in the same office once a week, um, but it was just so nice to kind of have that in-depth chat and really get to know her on a deeper level and what she's trying to achieve in this industry that we're both trying to navigate. If you enjoyed listening, tell your friends, share on your socials, and of course, subscribe. 
You can follow Box of Tricks on Twitter at B-O-T-T-C and on Instagram at Box of Tricks Theatre. You can find me at Carla M. Sweet on both platforms and you can follow Justina across all platforms at Justina with an A. Thanks for joining us again for the Playmakers podcast. I will see you next time. Thank you.